Hello and welcome to Reggie's Take Podcast. I welcome back a longtime guest and co-host, James from the True Believers, as we're going to celebrate 60 years of Spider-Man from the comics to the big screen. For those of you who have been listening to my Inner World series, that will uh, return in the next podcast. But first, I want to say a big welcome back. Thank you, James. Hello. Thank you. How's it going, man? I'm all right. How's life? It's life. It's good. You can't complain. I mean, it could be worse, uh, right? Yes, it, <laughs> it could, could be, be worse. worse. And you and I could talk about a lot of different things that I really don't want on the podcast. So. No, <laughs> let's not. Uh, no. We're going to talk about Spider-Man today since Spider-Man will celebrate its 60th anniversary in August wow. from its first posting on the comic book. And as you're already aware of this one, the Amazing Fantasy number 15 in August of That's 62. Right. That's right. But first, I want to start with something. There's probably people on the web who probably already know about this. I came across an interview on YouTube of Sir Alex Guinness, guy who played the original Obi-Wan yeah. Kenobi. And it's from a 1977 interview on a BBC talk show with a Michael Peterson. And in this interview, the clip is only maybe five minutes long at most. But in this interview, he's talking about how he got the role that George Lucas personally delivered the script to his house. He thought George Lucas is one of those new upcoming directors. Thought that was kind of different and unique for a director to personally deliver the script. But he's like, all right. And when he opened it up, he saw it was Star Wars and that was a sci-fi. And initially he's like, yeah, this probably isn't for me because it's science fiction. It just wasn't his thing. Well, eventually he did open it up, started reading it, and he found it a page turner and met with George Lucas and he kind of talked with him and he kind of made fun of George's voice at the time, you know, and that was kind of funny. Yeah. But he's talking about that he finally made a deal with Lucas to do the part of Obi-Wan. Come to find out, Alex Guinness, in part of his contract to do Star Wars, there was also an agreement for a profit sharing agreement. You know, like some actors still get a certain amount of percentage on the back end after money from the theater earned. Well, in 1977, Star Wars made between its U.S. run and its international run, which really didn't start till late 77, early 78 at the time, took in a total of $410 million. Sir Alex Guinness' profit share agreement was for 2.25%, oh, wow. just two and a quarter percent, which you think not really much, but you figure that out for the $410 million that movie earned. Sir Alex Guinness took home $9.2 million wow. on that back end deal in 1977, which I found amazing. And he said in this interview that he'd gotten a couple of those things before, but the movies had always failed and were never that good. He's like, yeah, okay, fine, I'll, I'll do that again. But he was never expecting much yeah. out of Star Wars. Quite extraordinary, been all these years in, in movies, now all of a sudden you've hit the jackpot <laughs> with a thing called Star Wars. But I mean, how did you come to, to be involved with a piece of science fiction like that? Well, I, it arrived as a script. I was just finishing a picture in Hollywood. Um, another day to go and a script arrived on my dressing table. Um, and I heard that it had been delivered by George Lucas. And I thought, well, that's rather impressive because he's an up-and-coming and very respectworthy young director, so... And then when I opened it and found it was science fiction, I thought, oh, crumbs, you know, this is simply not for me. <laughs> then I started reading, and it seemed to me the dialogue was pretty ropey. Uh, <laughs> but I had to go on turning the page. And the, I mean, that's an essential yes. in any script. You've got to know what happens next or, or what's going to be said next. And I, I went on reading and I thought, no, I'm gonna, I, I like this. Uh, if only we can get some of the dialogue altered. And then I met him, we got on very well, and I found myself doing it, that's all. And it's made more money than any other movie ever made. So I'm told. And yes. you've got yourself part of the action. Ah, well. Two that's... and a half percent, isn't it? No, 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 not quite that, no. What is it? So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, how much uh, is it? Uh, well, you want that story. Please. I tried to keep this dark. I don't know where this all sprang from. <laughs> um, I think it was the Evening Standard to blame for this. 
Now, I had a contract. I, my agent said, I've asked for 2% of whatever, because we didn't think we'd make any, you know. I've never had, a, I've had a percentage on a film before, and they lose money like mad if I have a percentage. <laughs> and I said, oh, fine, all right, 2%. Uh, and the day before the film opened in San Francisco, George Lucas phoned me and said, um, he's very, very, again, he's like Alan Bennett, he's very diffident and very shy and quiet. And he has a funny little voice. And he said, I think the movie's kind of going to be all right. And I said, oh, I'm glad, George. And he said, yeah, I've, I've the press quite like it. I said, good. He said, we're pleased with, um, you know, very grateful for little alterations you suggested. And so we'd like to offer you another half percent. By making it two and a half, I said, oh, that's, you know, that's marvelous. Thank you very much." But a matter of a few weeks later, in fact, the day I saw the film, I'd just seen it the once. The producer, who again is a charming, delightful chap, I said, "About this little extra something you were kindly offering, I wonder if we could have something in writing, just so that you know my agent and so on believes this." And he said, "Oh, the, about the quarter percent, yes." <laughs> This interview was sometime in late 77. It hadn't hit UK yet. It had been out in the US and had already become a big hit. I just kind of found that interesting that Alice Guinness, for whatever it is, he initially signed to do Star Wars, got another $9 million. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> and I kind of thought, good for him. No wonder he had no problems coming back to do Force Ghosts in the next two months. Oh, yeah. Why not? He made enough out of it. Just kind of thought that was interesting. I'm sure there's probably other people out there on, on the World Wide Web that probably maybe already knew that. Speaking of uh, Obi-Wan, have you watched the show? I have watched the Obi-Wan. I have not watched it. Is it good? I will say it is worth at least a watch. I had certain things I did not want to see have happen in the series. I'm not saying the series is bad. From what I watched and what I saw, I felt it was good. It was decent. There were some things they did in the series that I did not need to have happen or see. However you want to look at that. It's kind of how any prequel well, goes. I didn't mind the fact they were going to have Vader in the series. So long as, in my opinion, at least before I saw the show, Vader and Obi-Wan never came face to face. I was okay with Obi-Wan being aware of Vader and that Anakin had become Vader so long as Vader was not aware of Anakin. That didn't necessarily happen. But for what I did see, it was worth a watch. I've got mixed feelings about it. Yeah. Not as mixed feelings as I had when you and I talked last year about the Rise of Skywalker and, and some of that stuff. It's definitely worth a watch. I don't want to discourage anyone from seeing it just because of my opinions. I would definitely say go watch it make your own opinions and your own. So I've been kind of out of the nerd loop for the past couple years. I just kind of got tired of all this. I still love it, uh -huh. but after two decades of watching all these movies, I was just like, I can't watch anymore. So I had to take a long break. I did watch, and it was probably only the first five minutes of Boba Fett, the TV show, and it was great. He breaks out of the Sarlacc pit. That's one of those weird things where why Lucas never added that into any of the uh, special editions of episode six is beyond me. I get that it wouldn't flow, but he added stuff that didn't flow anyway, so why not add the thing that everyone actually wanted? I saw him break out of the Sarlacc pit. Oh, this is all I need to see. <laughs> I'm sure the rest is great. That's really the only thing I needed to see, and maybe I'll watch the rest later. This is pretty good. I'll just stop it right here. I know you, as you said, you're a little rough on your nerdness, so to speak. I did see Spider-Man No Way Home. I loved it. I love that movie a lot. Now, I think I told you this is the last nerd movie that I have to see. Now, that doesn't mean it was the last that I was going to see. I 
I did see Doctor Strange too. That was the last one where I was like, I have to see this. And it was great. It's more like a reunion, more like one big fan service, which I know kind of the J.J. Abrams, Star Wars and Star Trek yeah. kind of were, but especially the Star Wars ones. But I think with this one, they got it right. With those fan service-y types of movies, I don't know. They never quite get it right. And this one did. Now, granted, the story makes no damn sense whatsoever, and there's a lot of plot holes in it, but like, don't take it seriously. It's You're here to watch J.K. Simmons, Willem Dafoe, Alfred Molina, and Tobey Maguire. And I will say, Andrew Garfield and Jamie Foxx were great in it. For them, it was more like a redemption uh-huh. kind of, because that movie wasn't very good. It's not the worst movie in the world, but it, it's not good. This one really showed off how good of actors they both are, and everyone knew Jamie Foxx is a good actor, but the Got blue it. face paint was weird. Right. Like, I get they were trying to do something different. I get it. It didn't work. And that's how it goes. The fact that you were able to actually talk Jamie Foxx in the returning as Electro. The guy played Dr. Connors, the lizard guy. I mean, could you have had No Way Home still succeed and not have a couple of those villains show up? Okay, probably. At the end of the day, the only two you needed were Green uh, Goblin probably. and Doc Ock. Right. Could it still work, like you said? Yes. Even if you still had Toby and Andrew show up. The fact you were able to get all the main villains to come back for that movie and the two other Spider-Mans and, and J.K. Simmons, Simmons, that made it really cool. I really thought the best part of No Way Home, other than seeing Toby and, and Andrew both show up, was the scene on top of the high school where Toby and Andrew Spider-Man show up to talk to Tom Holland Spider-Man and both relaying the pains they yeah, suffered was... in their movies, trying to get Tom Holland Spider-Man to relate and understand, yes, we've had pain too. We've suffered loss. It's kind of like part of the game. Amazing how up until this movie, Tom Holland had a pretty easy first Spider-Man character. You know, Spider-Man has always been kind of like the comic book version of Joe. Everything bad always happens to him. And Tom Holland's Spider-Man, like he got to hang out with Tony Stark. And The worst thing that happened to Tom Holland's Spider-Man is he got dusted, really. But so did half the world. But if you want to look at it in that regard, I mean, I guess the worst thing that happened to him was he got dusted. And also getting outed, you know, for potentially killing Mysterio and revealed his identity. But she wondered how they were going to fix that. Well, they did by not fixing fixing it. it. Yes, they did by not fixing it at all. That goes back to, and I think one more day, that's where that is based on, where he makes a deal with Mephisto, who's like Marvel Satan, essentially, because was it Aunt May is dead or something? So he makes a deal, and it's, it's bad writing, is what it is. It's, we got ourselves in a hole, and now we gotta get out. After years of killing off half the main cast, now it's like, oh, some of them are just magically back now, and the movie just did the same thing, and I, I thought that was a cop-out. As much as I love that movie, and I did love it, that's a cop-out, but whatever. I mean, it was really good. It was really good. I really enjoyed that movie. You know, if you look back at the three Tom Holland Spider-Mans and not talking about his other appearances in some of the other Marvel movies, but just his three individual movies, this particular version of Spider-Man has worked without never having mentioned or talked about his Uncle Ben. No kidding. Which, you know, in some ways, if basically if they've come back and said, you know, this particular version of Spider-Man, Uncle Ben didn't exist. Yeah. I'm fine with no that. Uncle, that's kind of the I, third movie kind of pretty much implied. Come out and co- say it. Yeah, but if that's the case, I'm fine with that because we don't necessarily always have to have the same rehash of the backstories of Uncle Ben dying or in the case of Batman, you know, Martha and Thomas Wayne dying. The one thing I did not see coming when I went in to see that movie initially and I wasn't originally going to go see it as early as I did until you text me. Obviously, you had seen the movie because he's like, have you seen this yet? We need to talk about this. And I'm like, OK, give me a week. I gave you more than a week. <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, you gave me more in a week. I've seen it twice now, but... Uh, oh, I only saw it once. Uh, well, I, once it hit Blu-ray and home video, I was out at the store snatching it up to watch it again because the wife hadn't seen it. I went out to the movie theaters and actually had the theater to myself. And then the wife's like, yeah, go watch it because she was thinking, well, maybe you and I were going to do a podcast pretty soon. She didn't want to hold me back or anything like that. But I did not see them killing off Aunt May. That was one of those things. It was like, surprising. Here's another thing, though. And this is something else. This is why I won't say it's a perfect movie. That should have been, and maybe it's just because, again, I'm like getting older and I've seen all this crap. I feel like that should have been a really like gut punch. And for me, it really wasn't. I was like, God, that sucks. It, it was just, so crammed that it didn't give anyone any time to deal with to that. To process it's, it? Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to explain. And some of the jokes fell flat. Okay, so I can kind of rip it apart a little bit. But That's fine. It's been, like, it's, but again, at, at its core, what was the purpose of the movie? Fan service. It was. Let's admit it. And it did a great job of that. Oh, so. yes. 100%. I think if you're looking at movies that have done the fan service, it's probably one of the better ones that have done it. I think it is probably the best. Because I'm trying to think of others. The fan service type movie, usually, to be honest with, I'm usually not a fan of. Because mm -hmm. this one succeeded. I think because it just let the actors go loose. Now, obviously, Thomas Hayden Church, the guy who plays Lizard, I forget his name. Like, oh. obviously, they weren't available to actually be there. They probably had other movies going on. Mm -hmm. So it was weird that they're like, oh, we'll just CGI them and they can voice it from whatever studio that they were at. And right. Probably do it in a weekend, which is pretty cool. But also, I will say the animation for them, especially Sandman, just did not look good. But for some of those, they were so quick. Yeah. When I initially watched it, I didn't have time to pick up on some of the stuff like you just mentioned, where, you know, I was so focused on the other main stuff going on that they still did a good job with Sandman. Like Thomas Hayden Church is a really good actor. It's weird because I felt like I think a lot of this is up to the viewer's imagination, but I felt like, oh, he must have, after the events of Spider-Man 3, <laughs> he must have lived his life as a sand creature. Maybe he was the other superhero in that. Maybe he was doing superhero stuff and mm -hmm. in that universe, which the only one is really Spider-Man. Because there were some like hints at that. And maybe I'm wrong. Okay, so why are they forcing him to turn back into a human? They did. They didn't mm -hmm. give him a choice, right? They like No, I don't think he had a choice. But Tom Holland's Spider-Man perspective was, well, if he can fix them and, and give them the life they, they deserve, then... I had a real problem with that. It's not how it works. You gotta have the other person's consent on any of this. You can't just go around being God mm -hmm. to all these people. I mean, there are flaws in that movie, for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's one thing with some of the more dangerous characters, like Doc Ock and, and Green Goblin and Electro, like all three of them. Oh, uh, yeah. And Lizard. But Sandman really wasn't... No. Like, they should have just asked him, which I think they did when they were in the hotel. They Or not the hotel. Happy's um, apartment. He was volunteering on that. But still, well, after they got in a big fight and left, maybe you should ask again. Because <laughs> like, he's not an evil guy. He's not a huge threat. Now, Electro, yes, huge threat. I'm sorry, you gotta do it. Dr. Octopus, yes, absolutely. Wasn't Doc Ock, though, kind of a hero towards the end? He was, but without the help that he needed, he was a huge threat. Oh, yeah. I can kind of see that. But yeah, Sandman, it's like, man, you guys should have asked him if he wanted... <laughs> 
that seems messed up to me. And, I, and who knows? Like, the whole time, he's a sand monster. Mm -hmm. So, like, maybe there's this other backstory we don't know about. Maybe it has been years, mm -hmm. and he's been doing his Sandman heroics or whatever, but as the years go on, he turns into just sand, and he is dying. So maybe, who knows? It is weird that he was sand the entire time. Mm -hmm. And again, I know it's because they just could get Thomas Hayden Church on set, but yeah, it, it is weird. I really thought, and I'm spacing on the actor's name, guy plays Green Goblin. Willem Dafoe. Yeah, William Dafoe. I mean, he slipped back into that role so easily. I would say he'd been practicing for a return for the past 20 years, because is what it seemed like. If there was a star villain in that movie... Oh, it was him. It was definitely far, him. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you gave Doc Ock the first appearance and probably the bigger and, fight scene, and he's, but... Doc Ock, he's the fan favorite out of the two, I think, at least from the original movies, but... That's because I think everyone considers Spider-Man 2 in such high regard. It's a better movie, and he was a better villain, and Alfred Molina's type of acting that he brought in was pretty revolutionary to have that kind of caliber of actor in those types of movies, mm -hmm. um, for a villain anyway, and not saying anything against Willem Dafoe's style, you know what I mean. It was still kind of in the same vein as uh, Jack Nicholson, in a way. I can see that, yeah. But, man, I mean, Willem Dafoe is great. That scene after he killed Aunt May, they have that big fight, fight and he's getting punched in the face, laughing the entire time. That's, wow. <laughs> that was something. As I said earlier, I did not see the Aunt May being killed. I really didn't. So when that did happen, it was, holy crap, you actually went there with killing Aunt May. I really didn't think they would do that in this movie. I thought, okay, you're actually going to injure her, but no, they flat out just killed is, her. It is actually interesting that you bring that up, because as I was talking about earlier, the story was at least partially based on Brand New Day, which Aunt May died, and that's why Peter essentially, instead of Doctor Strange, it was Mephisto, but same concept, recreated the universe to bring her back, whereas this one, he did it for selfish his, reasons. He did it to keep his identity. And she ended up dying. Yeah. That could just be a coincidence. Maybe someone cherry-picked cer certain things from the comics, and it's like, hey, let's one throw this thing in. One more thing that I do have to complain. I know, I know. Ah, uh, you're fine. A movie that I love, but I'm like, I gotta complain. Five, really? Five villains? You couldn't do a Sinister Six? You couldn't? Seriously? You well, couldn't? I think if you really wanted to make fans really go nuts, hold in uh, Tom Hardy's Venom, but yeah. that might have overridden everything, and it might have taken away from bringing back the other, well, other villains. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I think Venom is the most overrated of Spider-Man's villains. I think he's the most, one of the most overrated Marvel characters of all time. I'm sorry if you're going to get hate mail for me saying that. I apologize. I kind of want to see the second Venom, just to see Woody Wade Harrelson, Harrelson as, as Carnage. Like, that looks cool. Which, speaking of, Venom, when they created him, was pretty cool, and then immediately, he was like too popular, so immediately they had to turn him into an anti-hero. So that's why they brought in Carnage, who is a hundred times cooler than Venom. He's a great villain. One problem I have bringing either villain, Venom in there, whether it's Tom Hardy or uh, Topher Grace, uh -huh. who I think gets way more hate than he deserves. I actually really liked him in that movie. It was more about the five minutes on screen of Venom was just kind of stupid. That church scene is amazing though. The other problem with bringing them in is he's too similar to both aesthetically speaking anyway the lizard, which we already have. They have pretty much the same powers of climbing on the walls and being scary animals and then personality wise too similar to the Green Goblin. So it's like he doesn't fit. Now bringing in either Harry also wouldn't work. No. Okay, bring in the vulture. I don't care. I mean, I wouldn't, but you can bring Mysterio back from the dead. Do something. Find a sixth villain. Make it a new one. I don't care. And then you could have had a, a Spider-Man 3 movie with Tom Holland that also would have been technically a Sinister Six at the same time kind of vibe, right? Is what you were thinking? Yeah, I'm sorry. You're one off from doing a Sinister Six. So why not 
not just make just it. Just put one in there. Put in Adrian Toomes. Bring Michael Keaton in. And why is he part of this group? Doesn't matter. The writing wasn't that good anyway. <laughs> Who cares? Just write some stupid thing why he's also in on this. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, no one really cares about the plot. <laughs> Like, clearly. But I also know, and I'm sorry, but I am a cynicist, a cynic, but um, I do think the reason why they did five villains instead of six is because Sony still wants, wants to make to a Sinister, Sinister Six movie, movie, which is so lame. You don't have to call him Sinister Six. Just put in six. Heck, the sixth guy could have been J. Jonah Jameson. He's not like an evil guy shooting anyone, but whatever. He's well, he kind of was kind of a dick. He kind of <laughs> was being a dick going he after was. Tom Holland's he could have been from another. He could have been from the old universe. Universe. Could have, Toby's universe. Yeah, yeah. they yeah. could have done something with that. Okay. He could have been the sixth villain. You think moving forward, because you know there can be more Spider-Man movies. You think Sony should keep working with Marvel in that sense, or you think Sony should try it on their own? Which I think that's what they're headed for. Well, if Morbius is any indication, they should not do it on their own. Yeah, didn't not, see it. I'm I haven't not seen it either. See it, but I mean, it, it looked like Underworld. Was that a Sony movie? I have no idea. I could not tell you right off the top of my head. <laughs> I'm sorry. What's his name? Thirty Seconds to Mars with the actor who plays. Morbius. Oh, yeah, played Joker. Yeah. Jared Leto. 30, yes. Jared Leto. 30 seconds to Mars. Ugh. You think after Morbius, you think he's done with trying to play comic book characters? I don't want to know what's in his head, to be honest. Because, yeah, I'm, not, I, I'm not a fan. I would have figured after what happened with Suicide Squad, he'd have been like, yeah, I'm not doing that. You kind of screwed me, so to speak, or at least screwed the character, potentially. And then he goes and does Morbius, and then yeah, Morbius just falls through the... I mean, know. unless he comes out and says that. No, I don't think so, because... Right now, they're still the biggest thing in theaters. Yeah. I mean, I'm surprised that this bubble hasn't burst yet. Yeah, I mean, if he still wants to make money, probably shouldn't turn down everyone. No. Suicide Squad. Well, that was, man, that was a bad movie. <laughs> That's one of the worst. The sequel was pretty good. I will admit that. I did see the sequel at home. Oh, James uh, Gunn's? Yeah. That one was pretty good. They were um, definitely more violent on that second one, I thought. Yeah. When those starfish mm. are killing all those people, there was something really off putting <laughs> especially all these people with I, guns shooting I, I, I saw central american I, I can't remember if it was just a picture someone did or someone took a couple the little bit of video from the trailers of that big starfish and someone put patrick's, patrick's pants on it so i kind of thought that was funny <laughs> i did watch the show you know he i am rusty what is his name cena oh john cena john cena it's pretty amazing because when he first started acting outside of wrestling in the marine he was so bad that movie's awful and he was so bad, but now he played such he's a dick really... in that Suicide Squad movie. Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, he, he was a bad guy, and that, yeah, that he, was weird that they made gave him his own show because he was like the bad guy. Yeah, well, whatever. But that, actually, I really liked the show. It was pretty funny. I didn't need to watch it by any means. It was a good time waster. <laughs> yeah, he's one that I'm kind of impressed with. A lot of wrestlers try to get into acting and varying success like The Rock did great and before that Hulk Hogan did pretty good did pretty well excuse me when John Cena started I was like man this guy needs to just focus on being incredibly good looking because he's such a terrible actor but I was wrong no he's actually a really really good actor and he's really funny once he realized that he's funny right he's like a Chris Hemsworth type almost almost no one is but <laughs> <laughs> I love Spider-Man No Way Home and I really hope Sony and Marvel keep working together as far as Spider-Man movies because I'm just afraid of what Sony will do by themselves. I realize they have the rights to the property as far
far as movies and they can do what the hell they want. That's their prerogative. But I think if you want to still keep, you know, making bank on movies like you did with No Way Home, to me, I think what's the harm in still working with Marvel? It's also weird. You don't necessarily have to put Spider-Man back in the MCU per se, but at least keep working with Marvel like you have been with these three movies and, and making sure you get good movies. And if you insist on doing the Sinister Six, let Marvel help you do it. At least if nothing else. I'm already not impressed with this whole Craven is getting his own movie, which he's like one of the last they, major villains I think that have Craven, not made it Craven into the Hunter and the and uh, Black Cat. Black Cat. I think if those movies fail like Morbius did, then I think that's going to tell. So first off, let me bring up Morbius. He's not a classic Spider-Man villain. He's from the 70s. They just lifted the restriction. There was a comic books code that kept comic books from showing a lot of things like mm -hmm. violence, drugs, nudity, etc. One of the things on the list was vampires, which is really dumb. So Bram Stoker's Dracula had become more, the character anyway, had become public domain. Marvel had a Dracula comic. And then they were like, well, let's give Spider-Man a vampire too. So they gave him Morbius. And he just never really felt like a classic villain. He is, but he's not the top tier. It is kind of weird, though, the how so many of those villains that came after the 60s all got their own comic books. Morbius, Punisher. Punisher was a Spider-Man villain initially. And Venom. Morbius is not a Spider-Man villain that anyone is ever clamoring for. No one was like, yeah, Morbius. I mean, I'm sure there is someone out there like that, but I don't ever want to meet him. Craven and Black Cat are classics. Black Cat came later. She came out in 79. She's an instant hit. She's a classic because she may not be from the original cast, but she's huge. Craven is from the original. He was part of the original Sinister Six, and he's the last of the Ditko era villains, I believe, to not, that I can think of offhand, that didn't make it on film. But it, he could have been the sixth one in this movie. They could have introduced a new guy. I don't know. I think the idea of giving him his own movie is not going to work out well. He should just be a Spider-Man villain. Same I, with Black Cat. I think if you're going to introduce those characters and try and introduce them on their own movies, maybe they should have been the next two villains up for, for the next Spider-Man movie, and, instead of trying to introduce them on their own. I mean, we're saying this now and watch those two movies would be awesome. I'm guessing here, but to me, especially with characters who are mainstream audience that would go see these movies, not everyone's going to be comic knowledgeable as right. far as to me, those type of characters you need to introduce actually within the Spider-Man movie. That way more people are like, oh, okay, these are actually Spider-Man. Because you sit there and see Craven the Hunter coming rated PG-13, someone like you or maybe myself might go, oh, okay, that's the Spider-Man character. But who's to say that four houses down the street are going to be who? We'll say with Morbius. Yeah, that's another other one that, that, you know, most people probably didn't know is his name, Punisher. Most mm -hmm. people don't know that he was a Spider-Man villain. He started out that started way. Started out that way, yeah. Of course, he's taken on a life of Oh, yeah, own. he has, for sure. Anyway, as we continue on with Spider-Man, you mentioned Steve Ditko. Mm -hmm. And when we did our uh, Stan Lee podcast after he passed away, you said at some point in the future, we should really talk about Steve Ditko a little bit yeah. more in depth. When you said, you know, I want to talk about Spider-Man No Way Home, even though it's been, you know, six, seven, eight months since it's come out, I started looking online and then come to find it's out. Hard to find stuff on him. He it is. It's just person. the stuff that, you know, pretty much everyone already knows anyway. I started looking online and realized, oh, well, Spider-Man's 60th anniversary is in August. Yeah. So I thought, what better time of continuing the theme of Spider-Man than with this? Steve Ditko died in 2018 at the age of 90. He and Lee died the same year. I think he died actually before. before. Stan Lee didn't die until like October. And he died June 29th of 2018. So he died before Stan Lee. Because you made mention of that, I believe, in our podcast on Stan Lee. He's pretty much just as responsible, maybe if not more so, than Stan Lee for Spider-Man to a point. At yeah. least as far as the 
nuts and bolts. One thing I want to bring up first is almost all the classic villains came under him. Like you have Chameleon, Vulture, Dr. Octopus, Sandman, Electro, Lizard, Craven, Green Goblin, of course, Green Goblin. Huge characters. It was just one after another. And those are pretty much the main villains. You also obviously have Kingpin, Rhino, and Shocker. They were created under John Romita Sr. You know, you have Black Cat who came later. You have Venom, of course. I mean, really, the big chunk of the main villains all came out within that first year under Ditko. And they were just instant classics. Of course, you also have, on the flip side of that coin, the other major character that he's responsible for is Doctor Strange. He drew Doctor Strange comics. I did not know that. Yeah, most of Marvel's stuff in the Stan Lee era was mostly Jack Kirby. But Steve Ditko, when we're talking about superheroes, there were other comics too. They did a lot of stuff. Kind of EC style comic, the Twilight Zone type stuff, just weird stories. There were westerns. There were uh, World War II ones. That's where Nick Fury comes from. The uh, superhero phenomenon enveloped all those. I don't think they thought superheroes were going to be as big again because they kind of died out in the 50s. Pretty much the only ones anyone liked were Batman and Superman. Those three guys started creating. Anyway, long story short, Steve Ditko, the two that he's mostly responsible for are Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. So that's why there's always been sort of a connection between those two, even though they're total opposites. Spider-Man is, at the end of the day, he's a kid. When you're talking about the Ditko years, he's in high school. Most of his villains are mad scientists, or a lot of them were also street criminals. These were the ones, they had kind of lame names like Master Planner and stuff. They didn't really catch on until years later when Ramita created Kingpin. Usually those gang leaders would die at the end of the issue or whatever. But um, yeah, on the opposite end, you've got Doctor Strange and bizarre stories, storylines. Like there's one where he meets a character called Eternity, who I guess is the embodiment of time and space. He's drawn as this giant silhouette and the universe is inside this silhouette. He's just a crazy character. Another thing Ramita is responsible for that a lot of people don't know is he revamped Iron Man's suit, the golden red that we all know. Okay. That was uh, Ditko. Ditko. If I said Ramita, I apologize. That that was Ditko. Because um, Jack Kirby did the big clunky one. Okay. And with a lot of those comics, sometimes it was just whichever artist was available. I'm guessing some had preferences how they did it. Yeah, and he just redrew it, and that one was just a better design. Ditko always has this kind of full mask look. You've got Spider-Man, you've got that version of Iron Man. He has a look, and then of course he did a lot of other characters. After he and Stanley had a big falling out, he went to DC for a while. He created characters Hawk and Dove. There's another character whose name I don't remember who looks just like Craven. Let me look him up real quick. Oh, it's like the, the pervert. No, it's not the pervert. But, uh, <laughs> the pervert. It's something like that, though. That's funny. Found him. Now I can't find his name. The Creeper. So it is similar to the pervert. His name is the Creeper. Okay. He looks kind of like Craven the Hunter. I think Stanley was more liberal for the most part, although Stanley liked to joke that the point of Iron Man was to piss off the liberal fans a little bit, <laughs> which is pretty funny. I think he was politically a little more on the liberal side. I think so. Yeah, actually, I think that's pretty well known. But Ditko was very much, I think we would call him a libertarian these days, but very niche. He was really into Ayn Rand and objectivism, which is funny because, you know, the Marvel method where the artist mostly did the story and Stan Lee would fill in the speech bubbles. But there's a lot of funny jabs where 
Peter Parker's walking on college campus by some protesters. And keep in mind, this is like 1963, and they're always protesting something or something like that. I mean, there's pretty funny stuff in there, but he did political comics later. They were pretty out there. I've seen them, and I'm like, ooh, these are pretty hardcore. But he became very reclusive. I mean, to the point where you can almost only find one or two photos of him online. It's really hard to find it. And most places when you come across Steve Ditko-related articles, it's usually the same picture. Yeah, I think I've only seen one picture of him. There might have been a second one out there, but he was extremely reclusive. Yeah, he and Stan Lee had a big falling out. I think a lot of it probably had to do with pay, which makes sense. But there was an argument over the Green Goblin. Ned Leeds was supposed to be the Green Goblin in Steve Ditko's mind. Ah. And so for years, the Green Goblin had a uh, secret identity, and at the end, he'd always go to his lair, and he'd, under the shadows, start taking his mask off, but you never see his face. They always draw a question mark, like, who is he? If you read in between the lines, there's this character named Ned Leeds. I don't know if his last name is Leeds on the movies. When I say loosely based, I mean, they're not the same character at all. He just has the same name. I love this character, by the way. I love the new kid, but they just slap a name from a previous character on a brand new character, essentially, which is fine. So Ned Leeds worked at the Daily Bugle. He was a reporter, and he was always stealing Betty Brant away from Peter. This is before Gwen Stacy or Mary Jane. Those two were created by John Romita. There was always hints. If you look back, there are hints that Ned Leeds and Green Goblin are one and the same. Hmm. But Stan Lee was like, that doesn't make sense. I think, first off, he's a reporter. How does he have all these gadgets? We know some reporters. They're right. not geniuses. They're not probably <laughs> making that much pay to have all that kind of stuff either. Exactly. To afford it. One of the first issues, I think it's issue 36. I can't remember offhand. It's one of the first where Ditko leaves and they bring in Ramita. You start seeing this shady guy with weird hair. Of course, it's Norman. And you meet this kid with weird hair. But like kind of Stan Lee's idea was, you know, on these movies and comics and TV shows, they always take off the mask and it's somebody he already knew. And he's like, how is that even possible? He's going to take off the mask and not know the guy. Now, granted, one issue before he meets Harry Osborne, but still, it's part of the story. The irony of that, though, is in every version of Spider-Man since, whether it's any of the cartoons, the Ultimate Spider-Man line, any of the movies, Peter already knows Norman Osborn. That's what's so ironic, is that goes against the big argument that allegedly split them up. I don't think that's what split them up. I think it was money. I think it was pay. That's usually what it is. I always think that's really funny. <laughs> but I will say, Norman Osborn is such a better villain than Ned Leeds ever could be. Here's where it gets weirder. Ned Leeds, there was another character in the 80s named the Hobgoblin. I kind of forgot about him when I was naming villains. He was a great villain. He filled the niche that was the Green Goblin because Harry Osborn never was a great villain. He was like, oh, poor Harry. Whereas Hobgoblin, we had the mystery back. It was the same thing, only 15 years later. Oh, we have this mystery. Like, who's this Hobgoblin fella? What is his name? Stern? Roger Stern was writing it and he moved to a different book. Well, whoever filled in after him was, oh, is Ned Leeds all along and Ned Leeds is dead. Ned Leeds got shot. It wasn't very well done. Oh, turns out he was the Hobgoblin. Well, Roger Stern in the 2000s went back because he hated that because he also had a guy named Roderick Kingsley who would appear here and there and he was supposed to be revealed as the Hobgoblin. So Roger Stern went back and he was like, no, I, as in Roderick Kingsley, am the Hobgoblin. I murdered Ned, Ned Leeds and framed him or whatever. That character is a lot. He's a minor character that just always ends up having something to do with the goblin, but not really, and it 
usually comes to down to writers not getting along. Honestly, this revamped version where he's just a kid, just a Filipino kid who's really good friends with Peter Parker, I'm like, oh, okay, I like this a lot better. That other stuff is too complicated. Don't make him Hobgoblin or Green Goblin or don't do any of that, please. What you just said would make sense. I did read someone's article that moving forward, if Tom Holland stays, would they make that character of Ned in Tom Holland's movie the greener Hobgoblin? And I was like, why would you do that for? I didn't understand yes. what would motivate him to become such with what you just said. Now just that makes to, sense as why someone would say with great power comes great responsibility. Don't do it. Keep this character who he is. And just don't do it. Don't bring that mess into the movies. That is the biggest mess of now. I wouldn't mind seeing the Hobgoblin come oh, up yeah, in a movie. No, he's a great villain. I, instead of a Green Goblin, I'd love to see the Hobgoblin. But after a while, you get tired of seeing the same villains pop up in different incarnations. Yeah. So at times I wouldn't mind seeing a different villain, which was great in the first two Tom Holland Spider-Man. You got different villains, which was fine. And I, I like that. When they brought Norman Osborn back to life in the comics, and of course, this is around the time that they had kind of retold the origin of Hobgoblin as well, but they haven't totally retired the character. I think they have to bring him back for copyright reasons. Again, I'm cynical. For the most part, that character's purpose was, we need another great villain. We don't have a Green Goblin level villain anymore because he's dead. And now that Green Goblin appears in the movies and cartoons and he's back in the comics, the need for the Hobgoblin isn't really there. So he's kind of fallen into the shadows. But he is a great character. Absolutely. Like he and uh, Black Cat kind of came out around the same time. From what I was finding online here with the release of the Amazing Fantasy 15, mm. Stan Lee in 2009 described the uh, short five page filler strips that uh, he and Steve did together were originally placed in any of our comics. They had a few extra pages to fill. No. Odd fantasy tales that I'd dream up with O. Henry type twist endings, giving an early example of what would later be known as the Marvel method of writer artist collaboration. We said all I had to do was give Steve a one line description of the plot and he would be off and running. He'd take those skeleton outlines I'd give him and turn them into classic little works yeah. of art that ended up being far cooler than, than I had any rights to expect. And I didn't know this. The collector's edition DVD release of the 2002 Spider Man movie. Yep, that's right. There was a copy of the Amazing Fantasy 15. Marvel published the 10 issue historical overview, the 100 greatest Marvels of all time, with the Amazing Fantasy 15 topping the list. Yeah. And also in 2008, an anonymous donor bequeathed to the Library of Congress the original 24 pages that of Ditko art for the Amazing Fantasy number 15, including Spider Man's debut of the stories, The Bell Ringer, Man in the Mummy Case, and There Are Martians Among Us. Yeah. So yeah. those are in the Library yeah. of Congress. That's awesome. Uh, which a couple of those I did not know. I also didn't know that Ditko for a while was working for a different comic book publisher and then he got tuberculosis in mid-1954 and then he did not return to working for comics until late 1955, which is when he started drawing for Atlas Comics, oh. which precursor to Marvel Comics. And then, of course, life goes on from there with him and Stan Lee. I also found that one of the most celebrated issues of the Stan Lee, mm -hmm. Steve Ditko I, I, run is issue 33 yeah. of February 1966, the third part of the story arc, If This Be My if Destiny. This be My Destiny. And featuring the dramatic scenes of Spider-Man through the force of will and thoughts of family escaping from being pinned by heavy machinery. I either did it on my show with you or with Enrique. I don't remember. I don't remember. It is, it is yeah. one of the most dynamic. Yeah. Back then, I mean, it, that one, the art in that one, we kind of take it for granted now. For granted. Excuse me. <laughs> 
Speaking of Rick and Morty, that's a joke from that show. I mean, we kind of take it for granted now, that kind of style, but there was nothing like that before. It's amazing. It's really worth reading if you get a chance. Comics historian Lee Daniels noted Steve Ditko squeezes every ounce of anguish out of Spider-Man's predicament, complete with visions of the uncle he failed and the aunt he has sworn to save. Mm -hmm. Peter David observed after his origin, this two-page sequence from Amazing Spider-Man number 33 is perhaps the best love sequence from the Stan Lee, Steve Ditko era. Steve Staffel stated that the full page of Ditko image from the Amazing Spider-Man number 33 is one of the most powerful ever to appear in the series and influence writers and artists for many years to come. Yeah. Matthew Manning wrote that Ditko illustrations for the first few pages of this Lee story included what would become one of the most iconic scenes in Spider-Man history. Also, the story was chosen as the number 15 in the 100 Greatest Marvel of All Time polls of Marvel readers in 2001. One of my all-time favorite stories that was illustrated by Steve Ditko was the Spider-Man story called The Final Chapter. Peter, or Spider-Man, found himself trapped in a subway tunnel with some huge something, a big piece of iron that was holding him down, and he couldn't escape without lifting that off him, and it looked as though he would, he would be trapped there forever. I never realized that Steve would draw it so magnificently. Instead of doing it in a couple of scenes, a couple of panels, like perhaps most artists would have done, Steve stretched that out for a number of pages where you keep seeing Spider-Man draining and forcing himself and trying to lift that huge iron object, but he just couldn't do it. But he didn't give up, and panel after panel, page after page, he's trying to free himself. And finally he does, and when he does, after the reader had seen all those other panels and pages, it was such a thrill, even to me, and I was the writer of the story, when I saw that, I almost shouted in triumph. Steve did a wonderful job on that. It might be the best Spider-Man comic. I will have to look that I, up. I, I, when I was not... younger, I used to say issue 121, but in issue 121 is huge. When I went back and read it as an adult, I was like, oh, and then, like it's kind of stupid. And it's, but yeah, issue 33, I do think off the top of my head, that might be the best Spider-Man issue ever. It's phenomenal. It was slightly referenced in the first Tom Holland movie. Remember, he meets up with Michael Keaton, the uh -huh. vulture. Is that where he gets buried? Yeah. The... Okay. It's not as good as the comic, though. But kind of it, more it of an homage to it. it. Yes. And they also say in Spider-Man 2, after Doc Ock sinks that giant magnet thing or whatever, uh -huh. like Peter's holding that big, uh, basically, side of the building. Yeah, keep it from falling on Mary they, Jane. They say that's also kind of a reference to it, too. If you only read two pages of any Spider-Man, read those. Because, like, the other thing you got to point out with 60s Marvel is Stan Lee's writing. Holy cow. I mean... It's it's a lot. I don't know. I think when you say a lot, is it a lot good or a lot bad? <laughs> it's very wordy. I mean, it gets exhausting after a while. It's, man, these two pages are phenomenal. What it is, is Stanley. I think... S something he could have said in two sentences, he draws out in five. Well, I think he felt like he had to do something during the action scenes, because like we've talked about the Marvel method, where Steve Ditko or uh, Jack Kirby would basically draw the whole panels, and then Stanley would have to fill in. But 
but you know, if someone's punching a guy, we don't need Spider-Man or Captain America saying, oh, I better dodge him out from the left. <laughs> we get it. You felt like you had to write something there, but you didn't have to. <laughs> it gets exhausting. But when that happens, just ignore the speech bubbles. So that might be the best issue of Spider-Man ever. Wow. That's, uh... I'm trying to think off the top of my head if there's another one that's better. I really do think when I was in college, I loved the Ramita years. For the most part, the Ramita years, kind of read them as an adult. They were very soap opera-y, but it's soap opera for teenage boys in the 60s. And it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but when you're a teenage boy, like I was when I was reading them, I thought that that was my favorite. I say college, high school and college. I, at the time, liked them better than the Ditko years. But no, the Ditko years are the best by far. And the Ramita years are great too. Don't get me wrong. But the Ditko years are great. Now, there's a few characters missing and we don't have Mary Jane or Gwen Stacy yet. We don't have the Kingpin. But, you know, we still have Flash Thompson and really J. Jonah Jameson was kind of the main antagonist of those early years. He was based on, the the funny part is when Ditko drew him, he was based on uh, Stan Lee. <laughs> and Stan Lee loved it and went to town with it, making him the most insane person <laughs> in the world. Okay, well, I'm going to ask this, not knowing how you might go about this, mm -hmm. but... I've been pretty chatty, so... Yeah, that's fine. I'm going to pin you down here. I'm going to pin you down. <laughs> oh, my. Movie-wise, at least. We can come back to the comics here in a minute if you want. Of all the Spider-Man movies, not counting Avengers Infinity War, Endgame, okay. or Civil War, not counting those three, just the actual individual Spider-Man movies themselves, the three Sam Raimi films, the two directed right. by Mark right. Webb, and then the three with Tom Holland, what would say would be your top three Spider-Man movies? And I'm going to guess I can probably pick out which one would be your number one. Yeah, number one would be Spider-Man 2. Um, and then after you give me those, what would be your bottom Spider-Man movie? Which I can might be able to guess that one as well. Possible. Number one would be Spider-Man 2. Of course, Spider-Man 2. None of the MCU movies would have existed if that movie never came. That movie broke all the barriers of previous superhero movies. I mean, as great as Tim Burton's Batman and as uh, with Michael Keaton or as Christopher Reeves' Superman. Superman were, they were still kind of confined to their genre. Mm -hmm. Spider-Man 2 broke that. And so did X-Men to some degree, but it didn't have the appeal that Spider-Man had. Anyway, that movie's the best. Number two, I am going to say Spider-Man 1. Great movie. I can quote it to this day. Number three's tough. I would probably say No Way Home, just because I loved that movie. But Far From Home was also pretty good. The fact that they made Mysterio a really good villain mm -hmm. was shocking. Everyone loves Mysterio. And he's another Ditko-era villain. He's one of the original Sinister Six. He's very much like a 60s Batman TV show villain. He's kind of like the Riddler. What was the actor's name? Frank Gorshin? Yes. Remember how Frank Gorshin's Riddler, he'd always send them a riddle and they'd have to stand around and figure it out. And uh -huh. That's kind of like how Mysterio was. He'd, there'd be an illusion and Spider-Man would have to figure it. Pretty corny stuff. Probably after Green Goblin, the most evil Spider-Man villain on film. And that guy does not have the blessing of, oh, he's mentally ill from a lab experiment, which I'm kind of calling BS. I think Norman Osborn was kind of evil before that. But yeah, no, he's just straight up evil. He's like, kill those kids. I don't care. I want money. I would probably say No Way Home would be number three. It was just the perfect. It almost felt like a conclusion to three different Spider-Man stories. And that's totally true. That's totally true. For me personally, it felt like the end of an era where I have to be caught up with all this nerd stuff. I was getting kind of tired of it for a couple years before that anyway. I was just like, man, I, I don't know. I might have said it at the beginning of this show, but that was the one where I was like, this is the last 
best nerd movie that I have to see. I don't have to see anything after. I still haven't seen the new Batman. I heard so, it's really good. Oh, it's so I heard good. it's really good. Or uh, the last uh, James Bond. I heard that one was kind of iffy. That depends on how you look at No Time to Die, how you view what they did in the movie, in my opinion. To me, No Time to Die for what they did with Bond, if you look at the Daniel Craig movies as a whole, mm. from the first one, Casino Royale, all the way to the end of No Time to Die, there is a beginning, middle, and end to this particular actor's portrayal of James Bond. Well, but that's kind of what Spectre was. Spectre was a really great finale to it. And I know the internet had some haters. I don't understand the internet haters. I don't understand why people would hate that movie. That movie was great. Was it as good as Skyfall? No. I'm sorry. I'm sorry it wasn't as good as like the best movie ever, but it wasn't. <laughs> the beginning of No Time to Die actually kind of addresses what they did at the end of Spectre, and then they move forward, kind of bring into a conclusion of what they did at the end of Spectre and how they brought Bond back into this fold with No Time to Die, and then the conclusion of No Time to Die. Personally, I thought what they did was the right choice, bringing this particular Daniel Craig's era of Bond to a close. I thought what they did was right. Now, is it the best of the Craig era Bond? No. Skyfall and Casino Royale would still be one and two in my book. Yeah. But I would say No Time to Die would be right there at third. But I felt... Really? It, you liked it better than Spectre? I've only seen Spectre twice. I, I really initially, don't get the hate with that movie. I haven't I thought it was a great movie. watched it since I initially brought it home on home video. So it's been several, several years since I've actually watched Spectre. So I would have to, at this point, go back, rewatch Spectre to reevaluate where I would put that <laughs> in my Bond. For it, me, for I, the Craig I love movies. the ending. Now, okay, I get it. The whole Blofeld being Bond's brother was kind of dumb. Yeah. I mean, Bond movies always kind of rip off what's popular at the time. They always have. Right. At the time, Brother Against Brother was really popular, and especially in superhero movies, but in other movies, but too. So, like, I think time, they were like, yeah, let's do this. But at the same like, time, nah. it's, that was a risk-reward move on their part. Yeah. It's how you view Spectre as to whether or not you like what they did with that. No. And so if you like Spectre and you really enjoy that movie, then you have no issues with that. But if you don't like it, then you're like, oh, my God, especially if you're one of the ones who proclaims themselves as a purist. You can't be a Bond purist. That's impossible. Well, like, none of them have ever, ever followed the books. No. You look at what they did with Connery and then with Roger Moore and as they moved on with all the different actors, in some ways, those movies always kind of reflect a little bit of the actor and what the actor brings to the sure. role and also trying to keep up with the times for what's going on because you can't necessarily always keep them in the 60s in the Cold War. I right. mean, you could try, but it would get old after a while. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen where uh, Barbara Broccoli put out here recently, at least when we recorded this podcast, you're looking at least 2024 before they even think about filming another one, so, yeah, yeah. which means at least 2025 before you get another Bond movie in theater. And they haven't even looked at trying to hire another actor yet, simply because they're looking how they move forward with the character and also try and reinvent the character to fit the times. Yeah. Which they had to do. But in some ways, you kind of have to do because as someone, as I follow the first Pierce Brosnan Bond movie with uh, <laughs> Judy Dench, she really puts the nail on the head. And I never thought about it when she basically calls Bond a misogynistic yeah. relic of the Cold War. When Bond was originally created by Fleming, he really was. Yeah. But now in today's times, the Cold War doesn't really technically exist well, to a point. Well, of so, course, Daniel Craig's character, they recreated him from the ground up to be a post 9-11. Now we're so far beyond post 9-11. We're post COVID. We're post insurrection. We're post, we're not post Ukraine. Ukraine. We're in, in Ukraine. Ukraine. Like, what do you do? There's a new horrible so thing you, happening every week. I would <laughs> rather see the producers behind Bond take the time, figure out where it is they want to take the character, how they want to make the character fit into today's world and how he's going to work best in today's world and then put out the best movie you possibly can with whatever actor you 
you go with and then give us a great James Bond movie. Yeah. I mean, Bond doesn't have to be a womanizer, martini drinking type yeah. of Bond in order for me to enjoy a good Bond movie. Granted, nowadays you've got a lot of other movies that almost kind of do Bond better. A couple of the Mission Impossible movies have done better than Bond. The uh, the Bourne movies with Matt Damon could almost be looked at better than some of the Bond movies of the last 20 years. Like I said, whenever Bond movies always kind of rip off what's popular and that was Quantum of Solace was definitely a Bourne so, identity but, rip off. You know, I'm fine with taking several years instead of just trying to rush out, find another actor and throw a movie out that may not be what we'd hope for a Bond movie. So I'd rather see them take their time. And one I have these, no problems with that. One of these days I'll watch it again. I kind of want to watch the others first. I might skip Quantum of Solace to be honest with you because I just don't like that one. That's a weird one because it doesn't do anything over the top bad like some of the other uh-huh. bad James Bond movies but it's just boring and hard to... And uh, see Bond is <laughs> Bond is actually celebrating 60 years this year as far as the That's movies right. are concerned which I am working on trying to put my list of Bond in order of worst to first and even though there's only technically 25 Bond movies officially I include Never Say Never with Sean Connery. You bastard. I do that. <laughs> I actually enjoy that movie with Sean Connery even though it's technically not an official Bond I'm movie. Say it's, it's better than Octopussy. Even though it's not technically official Bond movie it has Sean Connery. Yeah. He's playing James Bond even though it's a redo a of Thunderball yeah. but I don't care. Yeah. If they would said Never Say Never and done it with a different actor and instead of getting Sean Connery to come back and put it out there then yeah I probably wouldn't include it because it's do- Never Say Never Again. Yeah, right. But if they'd have done it with a different actor I wouldn't even include it. It'd be like okay it's a fun movie I wouldn't look at it as a official unofficial James Bond movie even though there's been others out there the original uh, Casino Royale was done as a parody back it's in the 60s. not good. But I've, I've tried. I'm not going to watch that one. So It's not worth it. It's kind of funny for like five minutes. It's just too dumb. I'd rather sit through Austin Powers movies than I would oh, yeah. some of the Speaking other stuff. Speaking of, you know, the third Austin Powers, at first they were looking at getting sued for Goldmember. Oh, yeah. Which didn't happen. But the backup title is going to be called Never Say Member Again, which is even funnier. <laughs> but anyway. Oh, that's anyway, rich. We'll go back to the Spider-Man in a minute, but one thing I want to say about the Batman movie, it looks great. I've heard it's great. And one of these days I'll watch it, but every time I see it, first off, I was not going to see it in theaters. I'm like, I'm not going to sit for three hours anymore. But every time I scroll through it, I'm like, man, that does look good. But then I think, I've seen so many Batman movies. Let's do something else. Let's go outside. I know, I sound like such a Debbie Downer, but it's just, I can't. I don't know if you've listened to, but I put out two solo podcasts Mm -hmm. and I just don't have the time like I used to. It's not that I don't want to do podcasts. It's not that I wouldn't mind sitting here and trying to do this on a semi-regular basis. Jobs, we have lives, and then on top of that, there's so much of this bout, you can't keep up. Not even necessarily keep up with the movies going on, but just trying to keep up with just, A, this does not pay the bills. (laughs) As much as I would like to make this a go and try and get it to pay the bills, like some do, but I don't have that kind of time to put into it where I don't have, you know, someone else to make this work. I don't have that kind of time and effort to be able to put into it because if I did, well, I wouldn't be married and I wouldn't have a job, a real job, that is. And that's not to say the guys who do this and make money off doing podcasts aren't a real job. The fact they're able to do that is great, but I can't play, quote, make believe on the internet all the time. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way either. I would love to do this. I like the interaction with someone else doing a podcast with you. Trying to do a solo podcast, I'm doing them because I'm trying to keep my podcast a little bit relevant as far as new material. I have gotten myself on more platforms now, fully aware that I will never get huge numbers following my That's podcast. That's not what it's about. I do it because I want to. It's my way of putting my two cents out there and anyone who 
listens to me. If you like what you hear, great. If you don't agree with what I say, fine. That's up to you, too. And there's nothing saying you have to come back and listen to another for podcast. For the most line. part, we don't get too political. No. We did for... We may hit a political subject here and there. It's not like we're talking hardcore politics like Meet the Press or whatever else is out there. Granted, I've got my personal views, and so do you. And we could rail against the system, so to speak. But that's not what I want to talk about if I'm going to sit down and do a podcast. And that doesn't matter either. Yeah. But I don't want to say nihilist, but nothing matters. I don't think I'm a nihilist, but I don't know what the word and, would... and sitting down with you today kind of meets our yearly, hey, let's do a podcast right now. Right. <laughs> well, going back, going back to Spider-Man. Uh, let's get back to Spider-Man. Uh, you said the three that I like the least. I mean, Spider-Man 3 and then the two Andrew Garfields. I mean, that's pretty easy. Those weren't good movies. I don't know which one I'd put at the very bottom, to be honest with you. Spider-Man 3 bothered me a lot at the time, but I can still quote it. So I did watch it a lot. I can still quote it. I think it had potential to be a really good movie. The two Andrew Garfields, the first one. I actually kind of like, like that. I like the and first one actually, with Andrew Garfield. Actually, I don't think that's a bad movie. My issue with that movie is it's the exact same movie as the trade-in Mary Jane for Gwen Stacy. It's got a little too much of a Batman-esque well, feel to it, too, well, a little bit with the parents. The, the, yeah, I didn't need anything on that. And then trade-in the Green Goblin for the Lizard and J. Jonah Jameson for Captain Stacy. It's the same movie. And I was like, oh, okay. But I don't think it's a bad movie. I think it's pretty good. The second one is a mess. The second one also, though, Spider-Man 3, it has moments of potential in it, but Sony didn't really know what they were doing at that point. They were trying to... They were trying to convolute the second Spider-Man with uh, Andrew Garfield, like people call, Trying said, to do an MCU. Like some people say Iron Man 2 is too convoluted, which I don't really see that in Iron Man 2. I get it to a point, but I don't see it that there, convoluted. It's not. Uh, now, I will say Iron Man 2, I think the mistake they made was rather than being about Iron Man, which it is about Iron Man, of course, mm. it really was more, rather than just being a good Iron Man movie, they tried to make it as a launching Pad. as like, yeah, basically like a... Uh, we're going to do a more of an expanded universe, so here we go. Well, I mean, it's basically like a like an appetizer for the Avengers. Uh-huh. Like it's getting you ready, for, but it, they didn't really do a good job of that. I don't think Iron Man 2 is a bad movie no, at all. I like Iron Man I think it gets more hate than it deserves. Was I disappointed in it when I saw it? Yes. But that's because the first movie was so good. How many movies in a franchise, even though that wasn't really a franchise yet, how many sequels can actually say they're as good or well, better than the first movie? here's the weird part, though. At that time, the trend, at least, with superhero movies was the second one is better. Spider-Man 2, X-Men 2, that might be it. Going back to the 70s, I don't know if I totally agree with this, but a lot of people think Superman 2 is better than the first one. I think I, I like the first I, one I, better. I think, I think I think of the first two Christopher Reeve movies, I'd say they're more equal with maybe the first Superman movie being ahead of the second one, but I wouldn't say... Superman 2's got more action in it with Zod, but I don't know if it's say it's a better than yeah. the first one. There's one thing I really don't like about Superman 2, and the, the stupid kryptonite kiss at the end. It's morally iffy to begin with. It's kind of dirt rimpy. It's also like, boy, that's convenient. Yeah. Like, that just... All of a sudden, you wipe away her knowing who he is. Yeah. Well, I guess we won't complicate the third one. Like, well, the third one sucks so bad anyway. Yeah. The only part about the third one was when he fights himself in the junkyard. That's it. <laughs> that's the only thing that I remember from the third one <laughs> that I want to remember from the third one. Whew, man, that one's bad. Not as bad as the fourth one. Have you ever seen that? The Quest for Peace? Yes. I've it's seen unwatchable. It. I think three and four of Superman. Really they are not equally are, bad. Are, They're both horrible, but they are not equal. The, the third one is certainly more irritating because why are you making 
making such a bad movie. But the fourth one is literally unwatchable. That's I because mean, it's, Christopher Reeve wrote it and directed it and well, trying to make a statement too. At the well, same time. that's the other reason is it was taken over by um, it wasn't Warner Brothers. I think they distributed it. Company that made them. I mean, it was a B movie company, and I forget what it. G and G. Like I said, I'm out of the loop. I don't remember all this stuff. But the company that made them, it's just a terrible B movie company. But when we're talking about comic book movies in general, from the Superman all the way up till now, I look at those first two Superman movies and even Tim Burton's first Batman movie mm-hmm. of really being the foundation of what all these other comic oh, books are sitting totally on. Are. Yeah. Because without those movies, I would put Spider-Man in there too. Because Spider-Man took that foundation and built upon it. And the first X-Men movie. It. I don't know if I would put X-Men in there. The X-Men movies are great, but they were kind of their own thing. Right. It was more like a team of weirdos. They didn't really mm-hmm. feel like superheroes. Well, I've always looked at the first two Superman movies and the first Batman movie as being the foundation of the comic book movies nowadays are so popular. Oh, yeah. If you didn't have especially those first two Superman movies, would we even be seeing the popularity we're seeing yeah. now or, or franchise that's basically almost over 30 movies long no. that is interconnected in one way or another with all these different characters who have their own sets of movies, but at the same time, they're connected to a bigger universe. And without Christopher Reeve and Michael Keaton in a certain sense, you don't have that. Granted, you know, 10 years apart between some of those movies, but... Well, I mean, yeah, think about it. Like, 10 years between the first Superman and the first Batman. First Superman was 78. 78, okay. And the Superman 2 in 80, Batman in 89, and then you got Spider-Man in 2002. So That turned 20 this year. Yes. That's terrifying (laughs) that that movie's that old. Was it one of the other superhero movies turned... Well, Spider-Man turned 20, and then you had Batman Returns turn 30 this year. Avengers is 10. Yes. The first Avengers movie is 10, yeah. I went back and rewatched Batman Returns when it was... It's a good movie. ...really close, and I hadn't watched that movie in probably over five, six, maybe even 10 years. They made mistakes, but it's a good movie. And I actually had a better opinion about it after I watched here recently than what was still in my head from the last time I had watched it. Yeah. And now I still have my issues with that movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. But after watching it again here recently, my opinion of it had come up. Oh, yeah. Okay, this wasn't as bad as I remembered it. It's actually a really good movie. It's not necessarily the best Batman movie. We like to joke a lot of times with these superhero sequels with, like, really good top-tier directors that sometimes the second one, sometimes it takes till the third one, but usually the second one is a little bit too much of the director. It's a little too timber. I don't like saying that because I'd rather the artistic view come out, but you are directing a franchise that you don't own. It's not yours, Mm -hmm. but this is just your version of it. Anyway, we used to joke that Batman Returns is actually a good movie, but it's a little too Tim Burton. Well, I kind of made the argument because I posted about Batman Returns turning 30, and I made my argument of where everyone always says, well, Joel Schumacher killed the Batman franchise in the late 90s, and I'm like, well, Schumacher may have put the final you know, knife in the heart for it, but to me the initial initial killing of it was Warner Brothers taking it away from Tim Burton and giving it to Schumacher for listening to fans and critics thinking that Batman Returns was too dark. If you look back at all the other Batmans we've gotten since then, and even with Returns, Returns is not nearly as dark as some of the other ones we've gotten. And obviously Batman has succeeded by being dark, but maybe Batman Returns was too ahead of its time for the studio, possibly. And here's the thing. The fans that like to bitch are the loudest fans. Oh, yeah, I know. And, of course, the worst fans, they're not the worst fans, but the, the poster boy fan club of the worst fans is the Star Wars fans. I will agree with you on that. Um, I can think of one fan group that's worse, but no one really thinks about them. And myself included, I would complain about things and whatever. I'd 
like I don't anymore, but it's so funny to me how everyone complained about the prequels. George Lucas ruined it, and now, now everyone all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, the prequel series was so beloved. But what's funny about that no. is the sequel series and these new modern Disney ones, they literally gave the fans everything that they'd been crying about, actual sets and set pieces, no more goofy kitty stuff for the most part. I know there's Baby Yoda. I mean... Baby you, Yoda works to a point. Yes, so. but they brought people all the stuff they wanted and, and people were like, ah, and complaining. And, and I'm not going to say Disney hasn't made a share of mistakes with Star Wars. No, it I, has. No, I'm not going to say that. It has made some mistakes in my opinion. It's just that you but, cannot but, please these people. But I'd almost say the sequel series in some ways is maybe not as good as the prequel series to a point. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I would agree. But at the same time, I would still put the first two sequel oh. movies, Force Awakens and Last Jedi, above the prequel. Which one the, was episode eight? Last Jedi. That's another movie that got all this hate. That movie's great. So was The Force Awakens. Force Awakens uh, is another one of those fan service movies, kind of like No Way Home. Well, and see, Force Awakens was, when I watched it, I loved it, but I've never really felt the need to rewatch it, if that makes sense. It is fan service, and they do a good job, but it's too similar to the first movie, and I get it. They don't do enough to, I'm not saying it's a bad movie, and that the scene with Han Solo was great, but it doesn't do enough to get me excited to rewatch it. Mm -hmm. Episode 8, I think that movie gets way more hate than it deserves. It has its issues, like the whole casino storyline doesn't really go anywhere. Right, it doesn't um, pan out. But man, I do not understand the fan bitching on that movie. It's like, oh well. And then of course, so Disney did what they shouldn't have done, brought Abrams back for 9, made it full fan service, and it ended up just eight. not being a good movie at all. He, Abrams Norris, 85% of what Johnson did in 8, to a point. Because the fans cried so, so much bad. about it. So really, Abrams made a sequel, but he made more of a sequel to The Force Awakens, not a sequel to The Last Jedi and The Force Awakens. It was more or less Force Awakens, boom, Rise of Skywalker. And I have mixed feelings on Palpatine. I was thrilled to see Ian McDermott back, and he's great in it, but it's also like, we're doing this again? But when I view it as fan service and just him being scary as heck. They did make him look scary as hell, and he did look... And he's great. He's a he, great actor. And he plays that character so well. I've enjoyed The Mandalorian, the first two seasons of The Mandalorian. I enjoyed Kenobi. Got some issues with Kenobi, but I enjoyed it. Book of Boba Fett is okay, but I say of all the Disney Star Wars series right now that come out, I would put that at the bottom for me. Mm -hmm. If you haven't watched it, I'm not going to say too much. I mean, it's okay, but I think it could have been way better. We still are getting a live action of Soka, which it looks like that's going to be more of a live action continuation of the animated Star Wars Rebels, which the animated series was pretty good for an animated series. I liked it. So I'll see how that goes. Eventually, Star Wars needs to return to the theaters, but I think what Disney needs to do is to set the next movie either so far back into the past that you can't even come close to what you've already done, or you need to set it three, four, five hundred years further in the future and just let everything that's happened between episode one through nine and just let it lay. You technically completed your Skywalker saga. Yeah, they'll, let it lay. The fans will never be happy. What you're implying right now is to get away from the Skywalkers, which they tried to do with episode eight mm -hmm. by saying, hey, there are other Jedi. Yes. People were mad about Why are you mad about that? We watched the prequels. There were all these Jedi yeah. people doing crap all over the place. I just say you need to move it further in the future. Give me new characters, new bad guys, and do not give me any sort of... Now, episode yeah. eight did have the highest critic reviews. Right. But the fans... Oh, the fans. They don't like change because they, they've watched those same movies a hundred times. times. So now when there's change, they get upset. And I think the biggest critics of those who don't like eight is because of what they did with Luke. I think that's where most of the hate comes from. I guess I don't really have a... And I like didn't have they, a problem with what they did with Luke in like, episode eight. What were they mad about? That he became a 
recluse. I think a lot had in their head, he's going to whip out his green lightsaber and he's going to go to town and be a badass. Like what happened with Vader at the end of Rogue One and go whoop on some First Order and be around for Episode 9, which in some ways I wish they hadn't killed Luke off until Episode 9, but for the way they did it, it works. I got no problems yeah, with I it. Yeah, fine with it. And in some ways, looking back on it now, I can see why they went ahead and killed him off in Episode 8, because you want to make the focus of the closing movie of the trilogy all about your new characters. You don't want your main hero but from the first the trilogy that's the other, still being around to help. That's the problem with doing anything for the fans. I'll be honest, I kind of feel the same way. No one really cared about the new characters. They just wanted to see the old ones come back. I get it, but it's also like, do you guys want the story to move on and go forward? Which clearly the answer is no. They want to see a remake over and over again until they get a remake, which is episode seven, <laughs> and then they're mad about that. Mm -hmm. They are the worst. There is one fan group worse. They I are, I'm waiting to hear this one. Okay, they are the DC fans. Now, when I say DC, I don't mean Superman fans or Batman fans. I mean DC comic exclusive fans are okay. pretty bad. The people who are like, Marvel, it's for kids. I'm reading DC. It's like, oh, shut up. <sighs> uh, so they're pretty bad. But then within that subset, the Snyder fans. Oh, my God. They are the QAnon of fans. They're weird. <laughs> they're so, they think that they've been wronged because the rest of the world doesn't understand this great vision. It wasn't a great vision. Those movies suck. And they act like they've been wronged. And someday their savior will come back and put everything right. And it's like, no, it's not happening, guys. Move on. They're smaller and have done less damage than the Star Wars fans, but they're weird. I mean, the Josh Whedon edited version of Justice League wasn't great. No. For years, he kept saying, release the Snyder Cut, release the Snyder release Cut. Release it. it! I'm like, oh, please, no, they're not going to do it. Let it go. And then all of a sudden, Warner Brothers says, oh, we're going to let Snyder do it, and then we're going to put it straight to HBO Max. And I'm like, you're just giving these people what they want. I mean, would I like to see what Snyder had done? Sure. Do I need it? No. So they put it out, and it's like, what, three hours long? No, it's four hours long. I have not watched it yet. I plan to. And some say I've been, it's, it's I've a been better told than, it's good. Yeah, I've heard the same thing. I'm going to say this. I tried watching it. It's not good. I got about five minutes in, and again, I got five minutes in. I'm sorry, but maybe I'm just too old for it. Everything is just this amazing exterior shot. It's just so self-important. And the moment I turned it off, and again, this is the very beginning, is when Aquaman, and I said, it's so self-important. They're made for children, okay? Yeah, you want to go dark, fine, but quit acting like you've made some grand art. Like you're making The Godfather. Uh, yes, or Lawrence of Arabia. It's not those movies, okay? But then I got to the part where Batman meets Aquaman. I think Batman meets. Very different from the movie. They're on the beach of Norway or something, and as he's walking back into the sea, these blonde Nordic girls are singing this weird, folky, operatic thing. No, I'm done. <laughs> I can't do this. That's as far as I got. Well, and it's like five minutes. Well, now all those fans have turned to get Warner Brothers to, quote, release the air cut of Suicide Squad. The Why one with would Jer anyone want that? I don't know. They I, need a hobby or a girlfriend or something. I don't think they understand when they say the studio interferes too much. Well, yeah, because it's their money. Yeah. It's not the director who's putting all his money in. It's the studio who's putting the money into this project. They're the ones who hired the yeah. director to make the movie. And if the studio wants to interfere in how that movie turns out, then that's their prerogative. You may not like it. The director may not like it. And the movie may end up coming out crap because of it. Yeah. But that's the studio's prerogative yeah. to do so. Yeah. It's the studio's job to then, instead of remaking the movie, we need to stop 
stop doing that. Instead of remaking the movie, maybe look at what went wrong and going forward, don't make that mistake again. You know how much money Warner Brothers shelled out so Snyder could put together his Uh, version? I'm scared to know. $70 million. Have they made that back? They released it to HBO Max and then put it out on video. That's it. It didn't get a theatrical release. My guess is they ate it. Every time I see someone put on Twitter, release the air cut or Snack Snyder will return. It's like, no, they're moving on, people. As much as I would like to see a Ben Affleck Batman movie taken on Deathstroke, it's not going to happen. No. As much as I would like to see Henry Cavill return as Superman, an actual proper sequel to his first one, not going to happen. Let's take this further. You know what I would rather see than any of these that's not going to happen? I would like to see Tim Burton Batman 3 with oh, Billy D. Williams as Two-Face. Loves. The one that we were supposed to get 30 years ago. The fact we're going to get Michael Keaton back returning in, as Batman is great. Yeah. The Flash movie with Ezra Miller, which is causing a lot of issues out yeah. in his personal Boy, life. that guy's something. Uh, but I really want to see the Flash movie. Man, if they could get Billy D. Williams in on that, that would be well, cool. Well, he's not as limber as he once was. No, he's not. It doesn't really work. He's walking with a cane, so I don't know. Oh, how, really? Yeah, oh. He, I, don't, I don't really think I guess that, he is pretty old. He, yeah, because he was in his, what, late 30s in Return of the Jedi, so, I mean, he'd be... Was he that old? I think. Whoa, I'm not saying that's old. Well, look at Harrison Ford. I mean, by the time the fifth Indiana Jones movie gets released next summer, he's going to be pushing almost 80. So they are making a fifth Oh, one. it's completed. They're is in it, post-production on it, that one. When does it take place? The 60s? I don't know exactly. the last one was the 50s, right? But it looks like there may be some flashbacks or something. I don't know what's going on because there was some photos released from the set and there's Nazis involved also again. But they said this would be a conclusion to the Indiana Jones with Harrison Ford. They I got James got Mangold say... to come in who did Logan to write it and direct oh, it. Oh, wow. So I'm going out on a limb. Although so it, Spielberg isn't directing it? No. Really? Uh, James Mangold wrote it and he's directing it. Wow. I think Spielberg's company may be the production company. Sure, yeah. No, Spielberg is only basically an executive producer on this. No kidding. He's not directing this one. Well, that's another one and I'm guilty of that one. I'm going to go out on a really big limb and say at the end of the movie, Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones dies. I'm not saying that they will do that. I'm just willing to bet if this is conclusion to the Indiana Jones with Harrison Ford, yeah. they're going to probably most likely kill him off. Now, do I need, do I want them necessarily to do that? No, but I wouldn't put it past him. I was definitely one of those people that was a little too shitty on the fourth one. I am going to say it is the worst movie of the series. It's a watchable of course, movie to me. But it's fine. It Like, it's not. If you look at it as people, a fun adventure movie, it's fine. The only issues I had, and unfortunately, this is just the way it is now. I wasn't a fan of the CGI animals. I don't think you're going to have, I think, PETA's too. It's just safer nowadays. Yeah, it's safer for the humans. It's safer for the animals. Safer like, for the movie I, company. Not, I get it. I'm not trying to dog PETA or anything like that. I get it. But man, I do kind of miss animals being in movies. It probably was morally wrong. It probably would be morally wrong. Wild animals against their will in a movie uh, when we can just CGI it. But and the CG's done correctly. It's it fine. didn't look good. CGI was still, it wasn't in its infancy by any means. It was 20 years old by that point. Kingdom of the Christmas Call came out in 2008. 2008. But it still was at a point where it didn't look as realistic as it does now. But that was it. I think Shia LaBeouf was good in that movie. Um, Some of the hate for him comes from the Transformer movies, but at that point, he'd only done one Transformer movie, so I can't see how that would be the case. I think there's something else, and I don't know what it is. I don't think it's his movies. I don't know if it's that he's a jerk, which I don't, from what I've read, I don't think he is. I mean, I'm sure he is like all stars are, but I don't think he's a huge jerk or Mm -hmm. anything like that. I think there's something else, and I don't know what it is. Is he going to be in the fifth one? Nothing has been mentioned of him being a part 
part of the movie. So I'm going to guess they're going to ignore the fact that he was in the last one or they're going to write him off in a way that he technically still exists, but he's off doing something else. That's the only thing I can conclude. If he is in the movie, then they're keeping it quiet and it's going to be a limited role if that's the case. Yeah, and that's fine. If it comes up, I guess they did put him in the movie. Assuming they did put him in, and even for a small part of the movie, they're not going to put it in the trailers. They're not going to announce it because they don't want anyone going, oh my God, what the hell? If he is in the movie, fine. I think if he's not in the movie, I'm okay with that too. I always had a problem with people complaining about the aliens in that movie. Who cares? It's set in the 50s, so it it's, makes sense. Yeah. Maybe you didn't need the flying saucer part at the end, taking off, maybe. Yeah, I need to rewatch it. I, I, I don't had know. no problem with it. That's not an unwatchable movie by no, no means. The I'm, fans' reaction, and that was a time when I was young and stupid, <laughs> and I bought into the fan hate, and it's like, no, don't do that. Is it the worst? Yes. Is it still good? Also, yes. As you and I talked about the last time when you were on one of my podcasts, I probably take it way too easy on a lot of movies. But did it bring me entertainment value? Yeah. Did I enjoy the movie? Did I have a fun time with it? Was it a fun ride? Plot hold up enough and the character's good enough to where I'll rewatch this again. Well, if that's the case, then I'm fine. Actually, you kind of led me to that too, because yeah, these are all dumb movies. Who cares? Who cares? As long as they're not terrible. If it's terrible, yes, then there's a problem. Now I don't this. have to love it. Right. But yeah, okay, whatever. Brings back to also what I said last year with Star Wars, with The Rise of Skywalker. I can still watch a movie. Yeah. Yes, I enjoyed it when I was in theaters, but over time, I do have issues with that movie and I always will. That's not to say I won't rewatch it at some point. That's the only Star Wars movie right now that I have not rewatched since I saw it in theaters. I don't want to get back in that discussion again from last year. Just this whole thing of I can still watch, quote, a dumb, fun movie mm -hmm. and either like it and enjoy it regardless of the stupidity of it, or I can still actually not like it. Yeah. But if it's one of those dumb, fun movies and I like it, just because the critics all bashed it doesn't mean I can't enjoy it. Well, and it's gotten to the point where it's not even the critics. It's this other mob of Twitter people. It's those people that I consider they, keyboard warriors. Well, you know, it goes back to the, the Snyder fans being the worst, but it goes back to them basically holding these companies hostage until they make it what they want. Or the Star Wars fans going after actors and actresses. Really, you should be going after the guys who wrote it and directed it, not for the actors who Actually, I'm going to take it a step further. If you didn't like it, just quit watching them. I've said I, that for a long time. Some people just don't seem it's to... It's like, I don't have to watch every... There's a million Star Wars shows. You saw Solo, right? I did, yeah. Okay. That movie I thought that was a good movie, actually. I can see why a lot of people say Solo is the one Star Wars movie no one was asking for, nor we technically needed. Very true. You still had Harrison Ford, who just got done playing Han Solo oh, in yeah. Force Awakens. Did we need the movie of how Han Solo got started? No. Could that movie have been done a little bit better to where oh, yeah. maybe fans would have bought into it more? Yes. I think there's a way you could have done it and the fans would have accepted it more. The other part, that really big part, I think that what's caused Solo problems, not the fact that you had to reshoot 90% of the movie with a new director with Ron Howard because Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy didn't like the way the first directors were doing the movie. They never should have released it in May of 2018. Last Jedi got released in, in December of 2017. So you release Solo in May of 2018, less than six months after Last Jedi, which is getting serious hate. And a lot of these fans are saying, I'm pissed at Lucasfilm and Disney. I'm going to boycott Solo. How many of those fans would have actually gone to seen Solo if, say, they would have pushed it? cooling it, period. Instead of releasing it in May, I say you should have pushed it back and released it in December like you had Rogue One, Last Jedi, Force Awakens. Just release it in December. Give a full year calendar period before you put Solo in theaters. Maybe Solo would have done a little bit better for you financially. That movie, instead of being under $200 million budget-wise, was closer to 350 because they reshot so much of it. Second, what they should have done, you might have been, I'll talk Harrison Ford into doing this, maybe should have been bookended with Harrison Ford and Billy D. 
D. Williams, beginning and mm. end. My theory is have Harrison Ford meeting up with Billy D. Williams before the events of The Force Awakens, saying, "Hey, how you doing? Long time, haven't seen you around, buddy." They start reminiscing, and then you slowly flash back to what the movie was. At the end of that movie, you come back to Harrison Ford and Billy D. Williams, and then you, Harrison Ford, I'd love to chat more, but I gotta go. And him and Chewie take off. They've picked up the signal, and they're gonna go pick up the Falcon like they did in Force Awakens. To me, if you'd done something like that, you probably could have shot that with those two actors in one day. No. Booked in it. If you'd have put those two actors in that movie playing their the original characters, maybe people would have been more accepting of the movie because then it had been like, oh, these guys are remembering back from back in their younger days about how Lando lost the Falcon and Solo got the Falcon, and then you move on. Would the movie have been any better for it? Maybe, maybe not. But I think fans would have made it been more accepting of having someone else playing Han Solo in a Han Solo movie where the bulk of it is not being played by Harrison Ford. If you could have done that and gotten away with it, maybe that movie might have even still done better at, at the box office even being released in May. I, I think another problem we have with that fans and, you know, I, I can probably put myself in this category is I think, you know, we were talking about they just want to see the same movies over and over again. Part of, and part of the problem is they saw these movies when they were kids and mm -hmm. realistically, even going back to the original trilogy, out of that trilogy, there's only one really, really good. I'm not saying the others aren't really good. They, of course they are. But the first one, A New Hope and okay. Return of the Jedi are, they're kids movies. They're really good kids movies, but they're kids movies. There's only one really good epic movie and that's Empire Strikes Back. So the problem is people, when they see the new ones when they're adults, they think it has to be, these are still kids movies, guys, at their heart. They're still for kids. Mm -hmm. Not saying you can't have people argue saying you want a good, sure. quote, kids movie. The only movies that I would say aren't really very good. I don't even want to call them bad, but it's like episode one. I still like episode one, but it is it's rough. Slow. It's they, slow. And the Jar Jar Binks it, is terrible. I have episode one at the bottom of my list of Star Wars movies. I would probably put it at the bottom as well. And I have it underneath Tack of the Clones. My biggest reasons for episode one being at the bottom is A, should have dialed back Jar Jar a little bit. Oh, I don't yeah, mind having a character like Jar Jar. No, not at all. But, but he was you needed too to dial much. him back yeah. a little bit. And at times it moved too slow. Yeah. It's not saying having slow parts in a movie can't be good for a movie, but it just didn't. No. It was either balls to the walls with that movie or it was at a snail's pace. Yeah. There was no weird. in between, no balance. What Lucas did with episode one, he tried to make movies, as you said, for the kids. Yeah. What he should have done is in the original trilogy, because he always said those original movies were, quote, for kids. Tell your story. You tell your story in a way that adults can like it, but it's also kid friendly. You well, don't have to play down to the kids in say, order. Return of the in Jedi order, was a little too kiddie, too. I wouldn't say as much. Not to the level that episode one is, no. but it's pretty kid. And I think Disney and Lucasfilm approach with the newer movies and shows, especially the movies, not necessarily the shows. I won't drag the shows into this part. At least with the movies, I think Disney and Lucasfilm need to take the Pixar approach. Pixar makes great animated movies. Yep. Some of those Pixar movies are adult themed as far as story, and they all where kids can watch them and laugh and enjoy yes. them, but the kids aren't always going to necessarily understand what's going on in the movie. Now, but the of... adults do understand, and I think if you take that approach a little bit to Star Wars today, granted, great writing, great directing, and a cohesive story, if you're going to do another trilogy, is all important, don't get me wrong. If you want to keep Star Wars, quote, kid-friendly, make your movie, but make it where kids can watch it, but yeah. you don't play down to the kids. Speaking of, have you seen Lightyear? No, I have not. Have you? No. How are the reviews on it? I know it's not doing too well box office-wise, but... Most of the critics are liking it. They're not necessarily in love with it. They've tried to play on the Toy Story aspect, when in reality, this movie, it's sort of connected to the Toy Story franchise, well, but at the same weird. time, it's not connected to the Toy well, Story franchise. Well, it's weird because it's a movie that Andy would have seen to make 
can say, I want to buzz light your Yeah, client. exactly, which is super weird. One of the guys I follow online said they didn't promote that enough in their promotions yeah. of the movie to make people understand, yeah. this is the movie that Andy went to see. For that reason, that's why you don't have Tim Allen doing the voice. Yeah. It's not the same Buzz Lightyear, even though it's technically yeah, sort of is like the when, Buzz Lightyear. Well, I mean, it makes sense, but they you're right. They didn't. Even nowadays, if you buy an Iron Man toy, you're not going to hear Robert Downey Jr.'s Junior's voice. voice. Like, no. That'll cost too much money. You would have an imitation of someone doing yeah. it, but you're not going to have the actual actor. And the toys never look exactly like what you saw in the movie anyway. A lot of times they're close. Nowadays, they're a lot better at it. I did see Bob's I, Burgers. That was good. I haven't seen that yet. Do you watch the show? I've Cartoons. never watched it religiously enough, and I've never watched it from the start. It's always been on reruns on cable I'm or gonna something. I'm going to say that show hit its peak years ago. Kind of like Simpsons and Family Guy kind and all of, those others kind have. Because I was like, man, I don't like this show as much as I used to, but I was getting excited about the movie. And I watched a new episode, and this was the first time I was like, oh, that was just bad. It turned into Full House at the end where they talked about their feelings. And this was a show that, it was a raunchy show. Uh -huh. It never had anything like that. And I was like, what is this? So then I started watching the first four seasons, and I'm laughing hysterically. Well, it's like just it, like Family Guy has peak, lost what, something. What, oh, a long time ago it did. I think hey, with yeah. Bob's Burgers, you know, it used to be really raunchy, and then I think they kind of made it kid-friendly and PG-rated over time, and there's always a song now, which is fine. The thing that bothers me is part of it might be because the writers got older. The creator, he's been making cartoons forever. He did home movies, if you've ever seen that show, and he had some influence. I don't know if he was a creator or co-creator on Metal whatever Met that's Yeah, that show's great. But he could just be getting older and he's, oh, I don't know about the dirty stuff anymore. Part of me does worry that we live in this super sensitive society and if that's the reason, then... But aside from all that, the movie was basically a sequel or a remake to the season four finale, I believe. So it's basically just another episode with a bigger budget, but it was good. Again, a little too much singing, but most of the music I liked, mm. I really liked it. It was really fun and enjoyable. And I was the only person in the theater when I oh wait no that was uh, Doctor Strange I was because I went in there at noon on a Wednesday I liked that movie too that was a good one I've seen Doctor Strange I didn't see it until it hit home video I enjoyed it definitely tell it's Sam Raimi yeah well it's Sam Raimi and it's also the screenwriter was a writer from Rick and Morty there were a lot of jokes that felt very Rick and Morty when uh, Doctor Strange is in I call it the cameo universe okay because it got all these cameos in it of right. other characters from other movies Captain Carter yeah. Xavier. He's in that glass cage and he's talking about Scarlet Witch coming in. He says a joke, something about situations like this usually don't end up well for people in lab coats. <laughs> That's a total Rick and Morty style joke. But yeah, the very end especially was very Sam Raimi. Maybe you can explain the whole third eye on Doctor Strange forehead. Oh, I can't explain it. I didn't know if there's something from the comics that I think there is. Most of the Doctor Strange I read was the Ditko era, uh -huh. so it's two years worth and it's the early early stuff dr strange is a great character but aside from that i haven't really read a whole lot of his solo comics mm -hmm. he's more like a fun character to pop in here and there i know in the 70s maybe it was 80s they redesigned him to where he would turn blue it was terrible he looked like a superhero now instead of a wizard i kind of think that third eye has to do with that but i could be wrong i really don't know what that is okay. i know there's the eye of agamotto but wasn't that one of the stones? I don't remember exactly. Doesn't make any sense. Do you have Amazon Prime? Yeah, I think so, yeah. There's a documentary that I came across. It's a couple years old. Actually, my wife came across it. It has to do with the guy who's responsible for the most successful part
part of the X-Men series. Chris, Chris Claremont. Yes. I met him at a Comic-Con in Kansas City and he signed an issue that he wrote uh-huh. from Dark Phoenix Saga from 79 or 80. Well, there's a documentary he on, signed a- that, on so Amazon Prime cool. about the Chris Claremont years of X-Men and oh, the yeah. comics. Those are the best. They're so it's, good. It's like an hour and 10 minutes long. Yeah. I haven't watched it yet, but I've got it marked to watch it. And they are super soap operas, but they are so good. So if you do have Amazon Prime, search for that. Will. I'm sure you'd probably be interested in yeah. it. Those but... are wild. They're not like the movies. So the movies mm-hmm. were pretty grounded in reality, at least the first couple, where it's, oh, just people with weird powers, and it's all about civil rights. Personal the, rights, yeah. The comics, both the Stan Lee years, but also the Chris Claremont years, are batshit insane. They're weird. They fight aliens and demons, and there's one where they go to hell, and at Dante's Inferno, and Doctor Strange is helping the X-Men. He's like, oh, we're in Dante's Inferno. We, we gotta go through the ninth gate. What is going on? <laughs> They're insane. But I love them. And then, of course, Phoenix. Yeah, that's a great run. Oh, and of course, he did the uh, Days of Future Past. He was there for a long time. He wrote X-Men up until, I think, the early 90s. I haven't checked that out yet, but it's a documentary on Amazon Prime. It, uh, happy birthday, Spider-Man. Oh, and they are coming out with uh, an extended cut of Spider-Man in theaters. September. I wonder what's going to be in that. You know, if, unless that extended cut of No Way Home has at least 10 minutes, I don't see what the worth is. If you tell me, come out and there's only three extra minutes, I'll wait till you po- put it back out on home video and yeah. force me to rebuy the damn thing again. Yeah. If you tell me, oh, there's 10, 15 minutes more in the movie, maybe it's worth going to check out again. Even if it doesn't improve the movie, you still got the, the original cut to enjoy exactly. anyway. It's like I said, it's a great movie. It really is. It's the last movie I ever needed to see. The last <laughs> nerd movie. That's not to say it was the last or will be the, be the last, last, but it's like Doctor Strange. You know what? I do want to see this and I do have the day off. I'll go see it. It was a different feeling than, mm-hmm. oh, I got to be on top of all this. I don't. I've seen them all. Yeah, it was like closure for just like all these movies. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That was the one. I almost thought they were going to kill Toby there for a second. When uh, we, I did too. Oh my God, you're actually going to kill McGuire's Spider-Man? He's like, I've been Holy stabbed crap. before. But when they didn't and those two were holding each other up, buddy, buddy, and then they kind of disappeared like all the others. Okay, you didn't technically kill him. All right. I think fans may have had a problem with that if they had, but I could have seen it because you'd have been like, okay, you're bringing the Tom McGuire Spider-Man to a close then. They had done that. I think Doc Ock and Green Goblin are still dead. It doesn't make sense sense to make them alive. In my little theory mind, after Dr. Octopus kind of gets his sanity back, he's like, I'm going to toss this crap in the water. There's this really good moment where the camera zooms in. Sam Raimi's so good behind the camera. Camera zooms in on Doc Ock turning around and looking at Toby, and then the camera zooms in on Toby. It might be reversed. I think that's the moment where Doc Ock remembers like, oh, and then I went on this weird adventure. That's his redemption moment. And then Green Goblin, I think when he says, don't tell Harry, that's when he remembers that. Or it could be his ghost. Could be what's haunting Harry. His ghost from the other dimension. Like he's trapped in Harry's mind now. As great as that was, it is super weird. Harry just is apparently insane and just starts seeing his dad's ghost and then breaks down the mirror to find his dad's Green Goblin. I don't think there's anything supernatural going on because those movies weren't supernatural. No. But it kind of felt like it. It was odd. Just going to ask you if, say, they came out and said Sam Raimi and Tobey Maguire were going to do one more Spider-Man movie. (laughs) As an older Spider-Man, would you be down for it? I'm not saying I wouldn't see it, but I stand by this statement that I don't need to see it. I'm not saying it's actually going to happen. I'm just saying if if for some reason... This movie was the closure. Yeah. Sort of like Spectre was the closure for me. I didn't need to see the next one after that. I still 
don't mind. This movie was closure on so many levels, not just for Spider-Man, but for all this geek stuff that I had been into since I was a kid. I can officially just kind of move on now. I mean, it felt really good. I'm also going to point out one more thing on that movie. Some people might have had issue with this, but remember when Doc Ock sees the Green Goblin for the first time, he says Norman or Osborne. So he knew his identity. So a lot of people thought that was weird. Not necessarily. Well, here's where I'm coming at. You know, going back to those movies, I always thought it was kind of weird. I mean, where are the police investigating this body or the Green Goblin? So my theory is, and I love this theory, is while no one could, because his body wasn't at the crime scene, no one could pin him down as being the Green Goblin. Like you can't. Because like, Spider-Man basically kind of made sure of that. Yeah, but everyone knew it. There were theories and conspiracies and, and everyone was like, yeah, he either was the Green Goblin and the only person who, who refuses to believe it is Harry. And of course, Harry is Doc Ock's boss, so he can't bring it up. He killed off all his board members and his competing company. I mean, come on. My theory on Doc Ock knowing Osborne was more or less because those guys would have been around. So uh, being who Doc Ock was and uh, who Osborne was, even if you say before the events of the first Spider-Man movie, assume Doc Ock would have had knowings of Osborne being Osborne Corp anyway. To me, it's not that surprised, you know, when Doc Ock sees Osborne in No Way Home, it's like, Osborne? You know, so it, it just... Like he recognizes the voice. To me, it's not that big of a stretch of how he would have known him anyway. No. So those two, I think, are both dead. Oh, yeah, they're still dead, I think. Electro, I'm okay with him coming so, back to life. Yeah. Because he's been reborn. He's reshaped his body, essentially. Yeah. So he can live, and he has his sanity back, and it's probably better than it was before. You know, maybe. But he can live a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I'm okay with that, him being alive. People kind of forget this, but he's pretty irredeemable. He did have, like, the highest body count of any of those Spider-Man villains. He killed a lot of people. I'd almost be willing to see Andrew Garfield come back as Spider-Man one more time, rather than I would see Toby. So that's just my opinion. That's though. another thing that people are clamoring for. They're like, we need an amazing spider It's like, no, you don't. No one needs I'm not that. saying we need it. I'm just saying I'd rather see Andrew Garfield get a chance at a third movie more so than I would see Toby getting a fourth. I would agree with that. I would also say I don't care, but I would agree with that. Toby's story's done. Yeah. It's done. Let it go. It was great. And maybe that would be the smarter thing for them to do because, you know, they have to keep making Spider-Man movies. They have to make one like every five years to keep the rights. And I don't know how these spinoff movies like Morbius, I don't know if those count. I also don't know if the um, Miles Morales movies count. Oh, uh, the animated ones? Yeah. Well, the second animated one coming out. Right. Does here, that count as... I don't know. Like, I can't remember what the next animated Miles Morales Spider-Man is entitled, but titled part one, which means the third movie will be obviously part two. I wonder, since this deals with jumping around, I wonder if Sony would be daring enough, and I'm not saying this is what they'll do, is at the end of the third one, we get the first glimpse of a live action Miles Morales. Yeah, maybe. And that's their way of maybe trying to bridge into a Miles Morales live action Spider-Man movie on top of whatever it is they may do with Tom Holland. Going back, in a way, that would be a smart, making an Andrew Garfield third. part three would be a smart way for them to just keep their uh, copyright right going. going. That might not be a bad idea. Even though the first one is for all it's worth, a pretty good movie. I really don't like those movies. And on top of that, I was going through kind of a dark place in my life during that time. So the idea of revisiting them is not on the table for me. <laughs> I mean, having him and Jamie Foxx and the lizard in this was enough. I don't need to delve back into those. I feel like that story is done too. And it is. He redeemed himself. Yeah. And Electro redeemed himself. Granted, Lizard redeemed himself, I think, at the end of the first one. So it wasn't so much a redemption 
origin story. It was just, he was just kind of there. But yeah, partially, again, I'm pretty sure because they couldn't get the actor back, but they could get him to voice yeah. the stuff. That makes sense to me. I think that's why those two are so CGI. I don't know that for a fact, but I think they had other obligations. I think, was this movie filmed during the pandemic? Yeah. Yeah. Travel's hard. Traveling from one set to another, difficult. I think they started principal photography in late 2020, and it okay. didn't wrap up until April, May yeah. of 2021. So they probably could not get these guys, but they were like, or hey, they just didn't want to. Well, that could be too. It depends. Be, but it's like, hey, we'll give you money to just voice your stuff in that studio booth for a weekend. And like, yeah, sure, why not? I think this is going to bring this podcast to a conclusion. Like Good talking with you once again. Always fun, Absolutely. always enjoyable. Yeah. And for all of my Reggie's Take listeners, you can find me on pretty much any platform you can find your podcast on. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk at you next time.